You can turn to John chapter 14. We're going to continue there this morning. Um, I'll confess in some ways this is a difficult passage, um, not necessarily intellectually, well, it has its challenges there, um, but more as we consider what it calls us to because of what Christ has done for us. But uh, have no fear. All right, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's pray. Father, in Christ is the fullness of grace and truth. And we need grace and truth this morning. And so we ask that you would give us Christ, whom you sent, that we might have this very grace and truth, and it through the Scriptures. Do this so that we can see your glory and that we might love and delight in you all the more as we see your goodness and grace towards us in your Son, in whom we pray. Amen. I want you to think for a moment about your life. Think for a moment about a time when you felt really alone and really powerless. Think about that. As I pondered that in my own life, I thought of when I moved to Florida to go to seminary. My parents were in the process of moving to California. Uh, this was 91. <clears throat> and so I moved to a place where I knew absolutely no one. Uh, my roommate was not scheduled to arrive until later on in the month because I was going to take summer Greek. And initially my apartment wasn't ready, so I had to wait a few days and, you know, I was at someone else's apartment for a couple days. But when I finally got into my place, I mean, it, when it was empty, my stuff had not arrived yet. All I had was what was in the back of my little Subaru hatchback. And then I opened the refrigerator. And I saw that they had been closed and therefore it was moldy. The mold that attacks 
your sense of smell and overwhelms you. And there was no one, I couldn't say, Mom, can you help me with this? Dad, can you lend me a hand? I couldn't pick up the phone. Remember, this is before cell phones. Couldn't pick up the phone because I didn't have phone service yet and ask anyone for help. And it was that moment I kind of sat down. I almost cried, actually, that night. What have I done? <laughs> I did this to myself. <laughs> and I was overwhelmed, and I felt helpless. And all of us feel that way at various points of our lives. And the disciples are about to feel that way. They're, they're about to say, why have I followed this Jesus because now he's dead? They're going to feel alone and they're going to feel helpless. And that is the situation to which Jesus continues to speak to them and to us by extension. Our big idea this morning is that Jesus is our advocate so that we will grow in grace. Let's start. I'm not going to work logically through this. I'm going to kind of save the beginning for the end because I see it as bookends on this passage. Let's start with the realization that Jesus dwells in genuine disciples. There is sort of that question that hangs because you had Judas who looked like a disciple, but who wasn't really a disciple. And so there's going to be this question that Jesus is sort of implicitly answering, who are the genuine disciples? Last week we talked about one mystery of the Trinity, and that is the, the idea of mutual indwelling. And there's more mystery to be had here in the upper room discourse. Jesus starts, in a sense, by Because he's about to leave, he comforts them by saying, I will not leave you as orphans. Earlier he had spoken to them in this discourse by calling them my little children. Jesus is taking the role of the paterfamilias. He is speaking as the head of the household. And when the head of the household dies, bad things often happen to the household. Two of my children are now my children precisely because the head of their household, their grandfather, died and the family fell apart. And so they were orphans, alone and helpless. And Jesus has comforted them saying, that's not going to happen to you. They will feel lost. They will feel afraid. They will feel defenseless, just like parentless children when he dies. I'm reminded of another time in my life when I was a kid. My brothers were older, and so when I woke up that morning, they had already gone to school, and I expected to find my mother there getting breakfast ready for me, and she was nowhere to be found. Being a curious child and a probably frightened child, I went to see if she was outside. And that is when I discovered that I had locked myself out of the house. And so now I am a child without shoes or socks upon my feet. I'm thankful I had some clothing on. Who's now locked out of the house. That's kind of probably how they feel. Okay. 
Thankfully, my mother came home from dropping my dad off at work. (laughs) Jesus says he's going to come home to them, in a sense. He wants them to know that they're not going to be alone and abandoned. He is going to come. Most likely, this is referring to the post-resurrection appearances because it says that he is going to be seen by them, but he's not going to be seen by the world. So this, I think, leans itself in that way. I think he's speaking specifically to the disciples in this instance and not necessarily to us by extension. Okay, When we look at the post-resurrection uh, appearances of Jesus, we find that he did come to the disciples, to those who trusted him. First in to Mary, and then to, uh, to Peter, and then to you know, the, the whole upper room experience again. And then we see uh, Paul mentioning in 1 Corinthians 15, the um, appearing to th- hundreds of disciples at one time. His disciples were able to see him, but the world did not see him. Not because they were blind, but because he did not appear to them. But I think there's also some, something going on that we need to recognize as well. And we see this beginning in John 3 when he's speaking to Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or regenerate, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so the reason why Jesus only appeared to those who believed is because the others were not ready to see the kingdom of God. They wouldn't be able to process the resurrection of Christ, but the disciples who have been born again by the power of the Spirit are able to understand the kingdom and the king of that kingdom. And so he appears to them. But he wants to move them deeper. It's not just that he's going to come with them and and, and make a couple of appearances in the 40 days after his resurrection, but there's something deeper going on because he says, because I live, you also will live. That the resurrection of Jesus is going to bring them life, and this applies not just to them, but also to us. We have been, if we are in Christ, we have been made alive by God in Christ. And so the spiritual and eternal life that they experience is a result of their union with Christ. And that is why Paul says in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And so Paul understands that because of his union with Christ, Christ's death on the cross was His death on the cross. And so his the, the payment for His sin, the curse for His sin, has been taken by Jesus. And Jesus' rising again from the dead is His rising again from the dead so that He lives now with eternal life. That idea of union with Christ is found not just in Paul's theology, but right here in Jesus' theology, which is why it exists in Paul's. Genuine Christians are those who are united to Christ by the power of the Spirit. And what we see here is that Jesus is sort of 
amplifying and applying what he has been teaching all along with the, with the idea of life in John's gospel. That because he is the bread of life, if we have him, we have life. Okay, we could work through this more fully, but we only have so much time this morning. And so union with Christ shows up again where he says, you in me and I in you. Okay, he'd been talking about how he dwelt in the Father and how the Father dwelt in him, and now he kind of lays this out is that you dwell in me and I dwell in you. This is this new aspect to how we experience life in Christ. Something that we cannot measure, touch, or feel <laughs> has happened. Something we cannot perceive has taken place. I'm in Christ. And that's why Paul says that we're seated with Him in the heavenly places because of our union with Him, because we dwell in Him. We are seated in heavenly places with Jesus. And He also dwells in us. Now, if you can wrap your mind around that, you're better than me. Okay? This is one of those things of our faith that we find in the Scriptures and we go, I believe it. I don't quite understand it, but I believe it. And so, union with Christ includes a mutual indwelling, similar to what we see with the Trinity. It's not measurable, but it is an article of our faith. And so, Jesus promises not to leave genuine Christians as orphans, but He dwells in them to give them life. Second thing I want us to see as we look at this passage this morning is that the Father sends the Spirit alongside genuine disciples. He's continuing to encourage these discouraged disciples as they face the fact of His death. But we see here that Jesus, as our great high priest, who sits upon the throne of grace, is about to make a request to the Father on their behalf. And the Father, he says, is going to grant it. And the Father will give you another helper, Jesus says. The Father comes to our aid by providing another helper. He sends a paraclete, one who is called alongside, particularly one who is called to help. And this translation uses helper. I'm not really excited about helper. Uh, the King James uses comforter, which is um, actually a, a fairly good translation if you keep in mind the changes in language that has taken place. What they meant by comforter is not exactly what we usually think of by comforter. There's tied more to the Latin that to bring strength. And so the, the spirit as the paraclete comes to bring strength to people who are weak. There's also this idea of the advocate. One who stands alongside you in the midst of your troubles. We think particularly of a lawyer. Sometimes we need a lawyer. 
I wish I never needed a lawyer. But right now, I'm getting sued. I want a lawyer. I want a good lawyer. I'm not sure I have a good lawyer. (laughs) But I need a good lawyer to assist me. Okay? The idea is is, is one who comes alongside, not to judge, but to defend, to bring strength, because you are weak, because you are helpless, and this is what you need, and the Father sends Him to you to do this very thing. He provides another advocate precisely because Jesus is the original advocate. We see this in the reading we had in 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we get a picture here of what's going on Uh, The person who is guilty needs an advocate with the Father because of his guilt and sin. And And John reminds them, we have a paraclete, we have an advocate, and it is Jesus who pleads His righteousness to cover your iniquity. Good news. Very good news. And it's that idea of, here, a defense lawyer. He's not only saying he didn't do it, or he's not saying he didn't do it, but what he's saying is, I paid the price for it, and my righteousness is now his righteousness because I dwell in him, and he or she dwells in me. And so they're righteous. And they're able to stand despite their sin. So Jesus is the first advocate, and now he explains that another one has come. The second advocate he defines as the Spirit of truth. And so he comes alongside us to give us truth. Jesus is the one who gives us righteousness, and he, the Spirit, gives us truth. Because he brings us Jesus, who is, as we saw, the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? Now, Jesus mentions here that you know him, but the world doesn't know him. And again, that kind of harkens back to what we see in John 3 with um, needing to be born again. But also we see it in 2 Corinthians 2. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, and we could include the Spirit himself, um, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And so Jesus sends the Spirit, in this instance particularly to the apostles, in order to give them the true interpretation of Christ's life and death and resurrection. Okay, Because we, of course, are prone to misinterpretation, all right? But also, apart from the revelation of God, Jesus is just another guy who had bad luck, okay? 
it is impossible to rightly understand the death and resurrection of Jesus apart from the work of the Spirit, first in the apostles to write the Scriptures, and now also in us to understand the Scriptures. Okay? So I'm pleading for the authority of the Scriptures given to us by the Spirit and uh, interpreted to us, illuminated for us by the Spirit. He says about this Spirit that He dwells with you and will be in you. And so He's not just called alongside us, but He also dwells in us. And so we see that not only do we have this idea of mutual indwelling with Christ Himself, but because of that, we also have the mutual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He indwells us. We are a temple of the Holy Spirit, Paul says in a number of places. But also we see that all Christians experience this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So if you are in Christ, you have been baptized by that one Spirit into Christ. And all were made to drink of one Spirit. So every Christian who has been brought into the body of Christ, and if you're not in the body of Christ, you're not a Christian, you drink of this one Spirit. And so this is one of those passages I use um, to communicate to people that there's no two-stage Christian experience where you get saved and then you get the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Okay? It's not a two-stage experience. Every Christian drinks of the Holy Spirit because they've been baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's not a, a subsequent action that takes place. But we see that it was initially fulfilled at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But that every Christian, when he's converted, receives the Holy Spirit. Okay? And so the indwelling of the Spirit is another promised benefit of the Gospel that is granted to us in Christ. From our um, assurance of pardon early in the service, I read from Galatians 3, and there it ties the promise to Abraham with the promised Holy Spirit. And so from Paul's thinking, this promise has been all the way back to the time of Abraham, now fulfilled in Jesus Christ as part of our salvation. And so as our advocate, Jesus requests another advocate. See how badly we need help. See how good God is. The Spirit of truth who comes to help us. Thirdly and lastly, Genuine disciples experience deepening obedience and communion. And this passage needs to be handled incredibly carefully, or you can fall into all kinds of bad teaching. Okay? <laughs> so, let's hope I'm handling it well. Okay, I believe I am. This subject is kind of the bookends of this text. 
and it's really sort of the evidence of the divine, uh, sorry, genuine discipleship. Because you know, I, there's no test to see if you're regenerate and if Jesus dwells in you. Okay, I used to work with the homeless, and so I had to have TB tests. Uh, same thing when I worked at the hospital. You know, they take a they take that thing and they jab you with it. It's always exciting. And if you have TB, then the, all kinds of funky things happen to your hand. And you already know, I'm in trouble, okay? <laughs> There's no test like that to determine, oh, yes, Steve is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so what does it manifest is really the question that's at work here. What does a, a genuine disciple look like? And Jesus starts this passage off with saying, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Now, this is not a command. This is not, if you love me, you must keep my commandments. This is more a statement of fact. The evidence that you love him is that there's a, there's a growth in obedience to him. Okay? So don't, don't hear this as a command. Hear this as just a, kind of a, a, you know, a mother loves her child. If you're a mother... It's just what you do. It's just a part of who you are, you know, and it manifests itself in taking care of your children, even though there are days when it, you think you're going over the edge, okay? And if you are indwelt with the Spirit, you, of course, love Christ, and what will play out in your life is you will keep His commandments, okay? And so we have, I think, this this process, for lack of a better term, we have faith in Christ crucified, okay? And because we, uh, he loved us first, we now love him. And because we love him, there's this process of progressive obedience. And so there, that word progressive is there for, you know, important, is very important because it's not as if you get converted, you love Jesus, and you perfectly obey Him. You know, like your life radically transforms 100%, uh, and you're, you're now perfect now. You know, I don't believe in Wesleyan perfectionism. Okay? But I do believe in progressive sanctification. And what happens is, it's sort of like math. We have some math teachers here, right? Can you start off doing algebra? You can try. But no, algebra is merely the application of mathematical principles that you learned beginning in kindergarten or first grade or, you know, whenever you happen to learn them. You, they're building blocks. You keep adding to your knowledge of mathematics so that you're able to do harder and harder math. And so as Christians, uh, we kind of start off, in a sense, with simple commands, and we grow in our understanding of the commands, and there's a progressive growth in our understanding of grace, and our, our receiving of grace, seeking of grace, and therefore growth in our obedience, if that makes sense. The question then has to be asked, what commandments... We clearly have the commandment that he said, you are to love one another as I have loved you. Uh, but let's think for a second about what he says right here. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
If you spend time in the Old Testament, that might sound familiar to you. Genesis, sorry, Genesis, Exodus 20, as well as Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 20, verse 6, it says, But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus is alluding to the Ten Commandments when he speaks this. As good Jews, they would have memorized the Ten Commandments, and when he said that, their brains would have gone, boop, boop, boop. hey, wait a minute here. Discipleship, Jesus says, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission, he says, you know, first you baptize them, and then you teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Jesus is not speaking simply, I believe, of his earthly ministry, but speaks beyond that. Okay? For instance, in the Old Testament, we, we read a couple of times, uh, and this initially happens how uh, in uh, Numbers, where they're at the waters of Meribah and they tested the Lord. And so repeatedly it says, don't test the Lord your God as you did in Meribah. And that's repeated a number of times in the Psalms. Okay? Don't test the Lord your God as you did in Meribah. Well, here's this interesting thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Okay? Verse 9. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Did you catch what he's doing? They put Christ to the test in the wilderness. He's not just saying that it's similar to when they put God to the test in the wilderness. He's saying they put Christ to the test in the wilderness. His instruction, His commandments, His goodness, His mercy was put to the test by the Israelites as they sinned in the wilderness. Okay? Jesus continues, he puts it another way, it's just a slight variation. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Okay? Our response ought to be similar to Wesley to Buttercup. As you wish. Why did Wesley say, as you wish, because Buttercup was the one he loved. And so, in a sense, her wish was his command. And the more we grow in our love for Christ, as we meditate upon his love for us, displayed upon the cross, the more we will start to say, as you wish the more we will begin to put to death our kingdom and our will and start to say, as 
you wish. Jesus then throws out the opposite. In its stark, horrifying words, the one who does not love me does not keep my commands. And we see that in the life of Israel. First of all, we see it in the life of Saul. We read from 1 Samuel 15 this morning, and and here's the thing. Here's the deceptiveness of the human heart because Saul kept claiming, I obeyed God. And Samuel goes, then why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen? Because if you really obeyed me, or really obeyed the Lord, they'd all be dead. And he tries to get around this by blaming the people and sort of by blaming the sacrificial system. Well, you know, we're going to offer them as sacrifices instead of this. And that's where you have Samuel giving out that incredible statement of to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed the word of the Lord uh, is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. And you know, what sin did he commit later? Divination. (laughs) And he experienced the, the kingdom being of Israel, the earthly kingdom, being removed from him and given to David. We see an even more horrible sort of experience of this with the northern kingdom in 2 Kings 17. Um, The author says, They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers. In verse 16, they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God. And that is why they went into exile. And so what Jesus is saying is really consistent with what we see in the Old Testament. Okay? But here's a promise. And again, initially this promise may strike us as very odd, and we have to be careful with it. My Father will love him and will come to him and make, we will come to him and make our home with him. Obedience, okay, got to be careful. It does not gain our salvation. Okay? He's not talking about justification here. Okay? He's not talking about union with Christ here. But obedience leads to greater communion with God who delights in our rather meager obedience. Okay? Our union with Christ is static. You're either united to him or you're not. Okay? But there's also this idea of communion with him or fellowship with him, and that is, that is dynamic. Okay? I've talked about this before. Um, parents do not rejoice in the wickedness of their children. Okay? In the same way, Though we are his children by grace, the Father does not rejoice in our wickedness, but he does rejoice in our obedience. Okay? 
We're his adopted children by grace that never changes. Okay, so don't hear me kind of saying that it does. Okay, we're his. We belong to him, and that will never change. But our experience of his fellowship may change with regard to are we walking with him and growing in love and obedience, or are we currently in a fit of disobedience? We see this in a number of places, in a number of ways, like Proverbs 8. I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. We see this as really, in a sense, that idea of my father, will, we will come to him and make our home with him. Um, it's the same word that we find used earlier in this chapter, that Jesus is going to prepare a dwelling for us. Okay, But now he's saying that God is going to dwell in us, a fulfillment of what we see in the promise of the new covenant in Ezekiel 37. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they will be their people. And so we have a greater experience of that. Or maybe put it another way. Paul talks about how the Spirit, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. We have a greater awareness of that. We're more attuned with it and alive with it, but when we're in a period of disobedience where we've hardened our hearts a little against it, that's what I'm talking about. That's where I think the Puritans come in handy, and Mark Jones' book on antinomianism is very helpful in that, when he talks about God's love of benevolence with, uh, compared with his love of delight or uh, complacency. God's love of delight or friendship is whereby he rewards his people according to their holiness. They're saved according to his love of benevolence, but they experience blessings, delight, by his love of friendship. He says in another place in that chapter, the love of complacency delights in the good that is in his elect, but only that good is but that good is only there because of his benevolent love. And so even the good things that he's rewarding in us are there precisely because he's already worked it into us. Okay? It's not something that you produce in your own strength and power, but it's actually something that he's produced because, let's go back to the another advocate, part of the strength that he brings us is the strength to obey. This is not about self-improvement. This is about Christ working in you because he has worked for you. Uh, Afterwards, Matthew, you can ask. Afterwards. Um, So the context here is is discipleship. The context is not conversion. And if we think it's conversion, we completely destroy our theology and it becomes a horrible mess. Okay? This is not about union with Christ, but it is about our communion with Him. And that, as I said, is dynamic, not static. Okay. This is meant to be an encouragement to us. 
He's holding out promises us, promises to draw us farther in. Okay? Sometimes we parents do that. Okay? We have a child who we wanted to, sh- to show us responsibility so they could enjoy the blessedness of owning hamsters. Okay? May not be blessedness for everyone else, but for her, it is great blessedness. Okay? Our encouragement to obedience. Because our Father is not a dictator, but is one who loves us and delights in us. So, to sum this up, we are not alone. We are not helpless. Jesus dwells in each of us, even as he is our advocate before the Father, interceding on our behalf as our righteousness. Jesus also asks the Father to to send the Holy Spirit to dwell in each Christian, to strengthen them and to help them understand the truth. And so, with the help of the Son and the help of the Spirit, we grow in obedience. And the Father's delight in us grows. And so, union with Christ and mutual indwelling are really the underlying mystery of the Christian life. Let's pray. Father, there is uh, stuff here that if we misunderstand, we do grievous harm to self and others. And so I pray especially that the Spirit would, um, who is the Spirit of truth, would help us to hear this right and believe this rightly, that it might be a great blessing to our souls as opposed to destroying us and destroying others. Father, for if we we don't understand the truth, we do damage. So have mercy on us. Help us to understand this aright in a way that brings health to us as Christians and to us as a community of Christians and, and as we seek to work in your world. May this be of great blessing to us and encouragement to us. Help us to really trust that you dwell in your people. That you really do take up residence in all of your people. And you have made us to reside in you. And this means that we have access to all that is in Christ. Encourage us by that as your spirit works in our hearts to believe what your word says. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.